Good morning, everyone. I would like to welcome you all to Drisha's Winter's Mon and today's Yomiyun on food ethics. Um, this is our first session of the day, Waste Not, Want Not, Food, Ethics, and Bal Tashrit with Rabbi Dr. Jonathan Crane. Um, Rabbi Dr. Crane serves as the Raymond F. Shinazi Scholar in Bioethics and Jewish Thought at Emory's Center for Ethics. A professor of medicine and of religion and director of the Food Studies and Ethics Program, Crane is a past president of the Society of Jewish Ethics, founder and co-editor of the Journal of Jewish Ethics, and author or editor of several books, most recently, Judaism, Race, and Ethics, Conversations and Questions. And without further ado, Rabbi Dr. Jonathan Crane. Good morning. Thank you so much, Sarah. Bokerto, everybody, and happy Secular New Year to all of you. I hope that you have been keeping well and finding ways to celebrate some semblance of joy with the uh, new year. Hopefully 2021 will be better than 2020, at least in one way or another for you. Uh, it is really my pleasure to join Drisha for this Yom Iyu and this day of learning, uh, especially about something that is an activity that we do all the time. And whether we are conscientious about that activity or not, that is something for each of us to, to wrestle with. What I want to do over the next uh, little while with you is to share my screen. I do have some slides and texts. I don't know if those were sent out to you, but we will be working through them together. Uh, and so this is designed to be interactive. So please do chime in uh, as you can, and hopefully we can have a, a good learning session. But what I'd like to do is, is uh, identify a couple of uh, issues that I've been thinking about for the last several years about when it comes to food and eating and doing so in a sustainable manner. And sustainability can mean a variety of different things. It can mean sustainable for the broader environment. It also can mean sustainable for me and the peculiarities of my body. My body is different from yours. And so what I should be eating is probably going to be different from what you should be eating. And so it's really hard to offer a prescription about what one should be eating at any one time because your body evolves uh, and develops over time and so should your diet. So sustainable eating uh, is a challenge in the contemporary American food landscape. And I hope that we'll be able to address some of those issues today. So I'm going to share my screen. Uh, and for those of you who are interested in following along with some of the Hebraic side of the texts, I don't have the Hebrew on the screen, but I have the English on the screen. Uh, for those of you who are interested in the Hebrew side, uh, Sarah has sent out a link to the um, to a, a worksheet that has most of the texts that we'll be discussing that has the Hebrew as well. That's available in the chat. So let me try and now share my screen. All right, so. I, one place to begin is with a beautiful little book called the Shulchan Shel Arba, written by Bachya ben Asher ibn Halawa uh, in the late 13th century, early 14th century. He lived in Spain. Um, he was part of the mystical tradition, uh, the Spanish mystical tradition. He was also a Torah exegete, so he was a commentator, but he wrote this little book called the, the Table of Four Legs um, that looks at eating etiquette. And it is four very pithy chapters. Some of it is now available up on Safaria, but it was translated by Jonathan Broomberg Krauss, who teaches at Wheaton College in Massachusetts. Uh, ironically, uh, Professor Krauss uh, came to Wheaton College just a few years after I graduated from that institution. So uh, it's, it's nice to know that that institution is well represented here. But of what uh, Bachia has to say 
it, among the many chapters on etiquette is this, that you can learn a lot about a person uh, by looking at how they behave at a table. Uh, you can discern a lot about their values, about what kind of food stuff they actually put on their plate and on their table, how they serve their guests, how they behave as a, as a host, and also uh, what it, how they behave as a guest at somebody else's table, and also their own treatment towards their own body. So there are a lot of things that can be revealed at the table, uh, not only uh, regarding the actual food stuff that you put on it. So let's begin here, uh, out on the streets rather than on the table. Uh, I would imagine that many of you have driven in a vehicle that can go quite fast, uh, perhaps 170 miles an hour. Uh, but my guess is, is that you rarely drive that vehicle that fast. In fact, it was probably illegal uh, for you to go zipping around Brooklyn uh, or Manhattan at those kinds of top speeds that uh, the vehicle that you have at your, at your command. Uh, it would be illegal and dangerous for you to drive that fast. But it's interesting that we have designed machines that can far exceed what we can do or should be doing with them. And it's not only out on the streets, it's also on our wrists. These fancy watches that many of us hold uh, onto, uh, attached to our bodies can do incredible things. This particular kind of watch called the Iron Man can go WR100M, which means that, that it's water resistant down to 100 meters. Now, if any of you have gone scuba diving, uh, you know that once you get your scuba diving certification, you are permitted to go down approximately 40 meters underwater. So in other words, this watch can go far beyond where you bodily are allowed to go. Uh, if you want to actually test this, uh, the strength of this watch, you have to cut off your arm and let it sink uh, down to the bottom to see this watch actually crack. So we make excessive technology uh, and we build it into our environments around us and we make it a plaything for us. Uh, things that we can use either in the streets or on our arms, even in our houses. And the smartphone that you probably have also has a lot of bells and whistles that you probably never even tap into. We surround ourselves with excessive technology all the time. We also do this uh, where we make the exciting mundane. Uh, that's, uh, but we also do the inverse. We make the mundane very exciting. For those of you who are unfamiliar, this is a, an ancient piece of technology called an iron. And this iron uh, used to be found in many people's homes uh, because they wanted to uh, press their clothes. Uh, it is now being used in the next Olympic sport called extreme ironing, and it is a global phenomenon. So we're taking the mundane and making it excessive, making it exciting. So we live in this weird cultural paradox where we make the exciting technologies mundane, we bring them down onto our wrists and into our pockets on our phones, and we make the very mundane activity of ironing very exciting. So we do this with technologies and we also do it with food. So take, for example, um, your slides aren't changing. You're not seeing the slides. Hold on. So, uh, sorry, folks. 
technical difficulties, literally. So uh, first we had the vehicle, um, and now we have a watch that can go places that you can't go, and this is an iron. Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with irons, and this is the sport of extreme ironing that I was talking about, where we make the mundane very exciting. Um, so, um, and we also do this to food. This is where we're picking up, that's right. So this is, welcome to the humble squash, also known as the pumpkin, which we make beautiful at certain times of the year. We make it uh, self-portraits uh, self at times. We make them grotesque. We make them quite small or big, depending on your interest. And then we carve them out and we paddle around the lakes of Wisconsin in them. And this is what we're doing to food. We make a very mundane squash quite exciting. We do this not only with natural stuff, but also manufactured food stuff. Welcome to the humble hot dog, where in the summertime up just a few miles from where you guys live, uh, for some of you who are in the Brooklyn area, um, the New York area, uh, is the Nathan's hot dog eating contest. There are feeder competitions, literally, uh, held around the world, predominantly in North America, in Europe, in Australia, and Japan. And they have these competitions to come to Coney Island on the 4th of July for the uh, hot dog eating contest, where we will literally watch people stuff their mouths, so much so that they can't even close their lips uh, to see how fast they can eat a certain number of hot dogs. And then we give them trophies. Not only that, there is the MLE, the Major League of Eaters. And these are the best competitive eaters in the world they, with the most amazing eating records possible. They are champions, they're warriors. These people are weapons of mass digestion. Uh, please note uh, the, um, the corporate sponsor of the Major League Eaters. Uh, so we live in this weird circumstance where uh, we celebrate eating and eating excessively. And we do it not only at uh, big gatherings like on the 4th of July and other kinds of holidays, we also do it mindlessly whenever we go to the movies, which unfortunately many of us were unable to do during 2020. Hopefully we can resume this activity in 2021. But if you are a uh, of the habit of eating something uh, at the movie theaters, you might have gotten yourself some popcorn. And these uh, popcorn sizes uh, are perhaps quite deceptive because uh, these are not your typical eight ounce uh, and 10 ounce and 12 ounce cups. This is perhaps I think about two gallons worth of popcorn right here, uh, which is not uncommon found in uh, many movie theaters but you all are perhaps familiar with our, uh, with the experience of eating yourself down to the bottom of one of these containers and feeling quite uncomfortable afterwards. Uh, this is uh, a, a phenomenon uh, that the CDC is quite worried about, uh, that there has been an explosion of what we now consider to be serving sizes. That popcorn that you would used to get uh, in the 1950s would be a tiny little baggie of uh, popcorn, and that would suffice you for the duration of the film. Uh, but since the 1950s, serving sizes, and this is just representative of some of the serving sizes, at least in the American food landscape, have uh, ballooned. So take fries, for example, they have more or less tripled in size, a hamburger has also tripled in size, and the average soda drink has uh, expanded by six times. 
So this is uh, what we notice is that the average morphology or body size of the 1950s American eater uh, was one thing, and the average size of the American eater today is quite another, perhaps mapping on quite linearly to the, uh, the ballooning of the, uh, the average food unit that we consume. And that is uh, a key concept for us to think about, which is the unit bias. Those of you who are sitting here this morning or this afternoon, depending on where you are, you might have a drink next to you. Uh, and so lift it up. Let's take a look at that drink that you have next to you. Um, I have my own coffee cup. You might have a coffee cup, a water mug or something like that, a, a, a soda can or something like that. But that is called the unit. And somebody someplace has designed that unit, not thinking about who you are, but thinking about the product that they want you to consume. And so we are all trained psychologically to consume the unit that somebody has given to us. So whether it's a particular box of popcorn or a, a candy bar or a plate of spaghetti at the restaurant, that is called the unit. And we are um, predisposed to consume uh, the totality of the unit, whatever it is uh, that we are served. That's called a unit bias. Uh, we're also trained in the American food landscape and basically everywhere, every culture, uh, to eat according to certain frequencies. In the United States, we're trained to eat not just three meals a day, but also in between meals. It is really hard for me when I'm working at Emory to uh, go from my desk to the bathroom without passing a, um, a a vending machine. And so they're making food very easy for me to eat and to consume. The government chimes in from time to time to tell me exactly how many calories I should be eating and much of which sorts of macronutrients I should be consuming. But they don't know me. They don't know the peculiarities of my body, but they are nonetheless trying to weigh in on how I should understand my consumptive self. We are surrounded by events all the time, whether it's Shabbat, the 4th of July, Passover, Easter, Eid, whatever it might be. But all of these holidays have foods related to them and eating practices associated with them. And these are us, acculturating us to eat in a particular way. Conveniences, as I just said, uh, with vending machines, drive-throughs that uh, are making it easier for us to access food while we get from point A to point B. Travel uh, mugs and containers also allow us to eat more frequently outside of meals. And also uh, the way that foods are priced um, help us to, uh, to make our food choices. It's actually in some places cheaper for you to buy a can of sugary water than it is for you to get uh, just plain water. So these are uh, incentivizing us to consume certain things and disincentivizing us from consuming certain things. And this is happening not only at the micro level at, with you and your personal wallet, but it's also happening, happening at the macro level, at the federal level. Every federal government is subsidizing certain pieces of the food industry at the expense of subsidizing other portions of the food industry. And so all of this, at least here in the American food landscape, is training us to eat according to external cues. We are trained to eat according to what we see around us, the frequency, the convenience, the government, the dollars, everything. They're training us to eat 
in a particular way. And this now constitutes what is commonly known as the SAD diet, the standard American diet, which we have seen is perhaps not necessarily the best way uh, to engage in eating this world. Why? Because if we look at the leading causes of death, at least in the United States, and this was from 2019, not from 2020, uh, of the top 10 leading causes of death, uh, eating and drinking has a significant factor in the vast majority of these leading uh, killers. And it's also true that uh, the best way for us to address um, the underappreciated uh, issue of climate change, um, that the best way for us to address them, according to Project Drawdown, which is perhaps the most sophisticated um, global effort to think about solutions to climate change, eating and food production are some of the most significant ways and most impactful ways for us to address climate change. Of the top 11, six are associated with food. So it is, I think, fair and not hyperbolic for us to say that we are literally eating ourselves to death, but we don't have to eat this way. We don't have to feed civilization this way. And you so today we're going people allowing people to starve to death. That's correct. And we allow people to starve to death, Wendy, because, because of uh, political decisions. Because there's too little food, but because of distribution. So that's a very good point. Uh, there is plenty of food, plenty of calories of proteins, plenty of nutrients already being produced in the world, globally speaking. And we have the technology to get the food to places and to people that it's needed. The problem is all the time coming up with uh, overcoming political issues. Uh, people don't necessarily always want to feed the poor and uh, the famished uh, for a variety of frankly selfish reasons. Um, but today we're going to be looking at three major issues, the plot, the plate, and principle. Um, we're going to look at uh, the difference between food lost and food waste, and we'll see how Judaism addresses these issues, and that is through pay'ah. We're also going to look at the, how what wasted food is, and how this is perhaps bonded uh, to a character or a habit of temperance. And we're also going to talk a little bit about wasting food and what might be uh, a principle for us to resist wasting food. Uh, and I'll unpack the, the distinctions here between food waste, wasted food, and wasting food. So let's at least start here with this first chapter, food loss and food waste. So food lost is that food which is found in the supply chain between the producer and the market. Typically food loss occurs as a result of pre-harvest, harvesting problems, handling of the food stuff, storing it, packing it, and transporting it. Food loss is often due to inadequate infrastructure, markets, price mechanisms, and legal frameworks. 
Food waste, by contrast, is food that is safe for us to consume, yet is discarded or used for non-food purposes. So for example, corn is often used to, de to develop ethanol. Typically a result of supply chain uh, sorting out of suboptimal produce, you've probably heard of ugly fruit or ugly uh, vegetables. So they are discarded because uh, grocers think that you won't buy them because they look ugly. And retail and consumer discarding foods near or beyond best dates. Uh, best buy dates are a fiction of uh, marketing and uh, they have no bearing whatsoever on the health or nutritional values themselves, purely a marketing ploy. There's only uh, a certain um, niche of foods where the best dates actually do have some semblance of, uh, of importance that you should pay attention to, and that's typically related to dairy and flesh, animal flesh uh, products, fresh animal flesh products. Uh, and food waste is often unused food in kitchens and eating establishments, foods that are discarded before it is either served or consumed. So there, this is the difference between food loss on the one hand and food waste. Food loss is foreseeable and unintended, whereas for food waste is foreseeable and intended. Um, so it is unintended for food that is produced in uh, the field that gets bruised or damaged on the way to a manufacturing plant. It is unintended for it to get damaged, but it is foreseeable. Uh, by contrast, the food that we throw away in our kitchen is that we're going to throw away yesterday's leftovers, and we're the ones who are doing it. We intend to do that, even though we might, uh, might not want to, we are nonetheless doing it. We are willfully wasting that food. So food loss, how do we solve it? It is mostly preventable through logistics, technological and legal changes, whereas food waste is mostly preventable through attitude and habit changing. Um, and this is food loss deals with stuff and it is easily uh, attended to through creative thinking and coordination of behavior and design, designing new technological ways to, to either harvest foods or get foods to uh, a manufacturing plant, keeping it cool or, or shelving it and storing it, but it's pertaining to stuff. Whereas if you want to talk about food waste, uh, then we need to talk about us and our own habits, our attitudes and behaviors. So it's really important that when you are talking uh, about food and waste, you want to be able to distinguish between these two different categories because your ultimate audience or your ultimate uh, object of concern is going to be different. On the one hand, it's the stuff that surrounds the food, the technologies, the logistics, et cetera, or is it you, ourselves, uh, our habits, um, and our practices? So Judaism offers us uh, a strategy to address both simultaneously. Uh, and that is through the, the issue of pe'ah, which is a biblical uh, idea found in the book of Leviticus that talks to farmers that when you are reaping uh, your, your harvest, you are not allowed to go all the way to the edges or corners of your field. 
Rather, you shall, uh, you shall leave those for the poor and the stranger. I am Adonai, your God. And this is echoed again a couple of chapters later in Leviticus. But what's interesting here is the rationale for this practice. The rationale is the reason why you should actually follow through on this rule. And it is because God has told you so. It's not because it's the right thing to do. It's not because it's the nice thing to do. It's not because it's going to make you more money. It is precisely because God has told you to do so. So that is one reason for you to make sure that you are not harvesting everything that you produce on your farms. Deuteronomy chimes in to say that when you are reaping your harvest uh, and you overlook a sheaf in the field, don't go back to collect it. Why? So that the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow uh, can um, go and get those things. And why is it that, that you should do that? So that God can bless you in all of your undertakings. In other words, you should leave the corners of your field, the gleanings and uh, the, uh, the uh, left uh, sheaves. You should leave all of those things so that God can bless you. It's so, sort of like an enlightened self-interest that you should do these sorts of things. It's not because God has commanded you, but be, so that you can receive some sort of blessing. Or it could also be uh, another reason that you should be doing the uh, engaging in this kind of harvest practice is because you should always remember that you were a slave in Egypt. In other words, it's either from enlightened self-interest or for historical reasons that we should be engaging in this practice of ensuring that the poor, the stranger, the fatherless, the widows, that the disenfranchised have access to fresh produce that there are multiple reasons. It's either because God has said so, because it's enlightened self-interest or because of historical reasons. Or perhaps it is, as Maimonides says in the Mishnah Torah, that it's important for people to, uh, to leave the, the leftover harvest. Um, so it's forbidden for workers to harvest all of the field unless they leave the end of the field the appropriate area, area for giving pay on and nothing is given to the poor at all until the landowner separates it for the purpose and full knowledge. In other words, the landowner, the producer has to conscientiously make it known that these pieces of fruits or vegetables, this grain, uh, this produce, whatever it might be is available for the poor and the disenfranchised. It has to be conscientiously uh, and intentionally left aside for those people who cannot otherwise purchase the foodstuffs. And uh, Maimonides also says that it is forbidden for you to let loose a lion in your field. Uh, why? For the sake of the ways of peace. Now, I don't know how many of you have a lion at your beck and call in your uh, backyard uh, that you would uh, feel free or comfortable to let loose in your field. Uh, but Maimonides says that if you do, uh, please make sure that you do not release it into your fields to intimidate the poor and the disenfranchised from accessing the foodstuffs to which they are otherwise entitled. So in other words, for security reasons, we should make sure that the poor have access to, that, uh, to those foodstuffs for which they are entitled. 
So these are just a few of the strategies that the, uh, and there's a lot more that's available in uh, payoff um, to, uh, for th that are instructions for Jews to think about to ensure that those people who do not have access to food have access to food. It is a way to reduce uh, food loss. Um, and uh, here are just a, a few more. Question? Please, go ahead. Could we say that the reason given because you were slaves in Egypt is almost given as an educative thing. You'll remember that you didn't get to pick up the gleanings there. You'll remember how hard it was, or you'll read about it, or your ancestors will tell you about it in writing. And that this, this is, will sensitize you to how poor people have to live and how they have to be able to get something to eat if they don't have money. So why do you think it is so important, Wendy, for us who may not necessarily be farmers or for us who may not necessarily have to worry about uh, where we're going to access or how we're going to access our next meal? Why is it important for us to think about either the veracity, the truthfulness of this historical story that we were slaves and that we were the disenfranchised or that the even if it's not true, why is it important for us to at least think that this is true. This is a way that will give us as a society and as individuals, um, the ability to help people who are poor and the ability to be uh, positive human beings and not just destructive human beings who only mm -hmm. take. And in our synagogues, we can do what I did in mine, which is run food drives and clothing drives all year, including the one I think I invented, the Hummets Drive, mm -hmm. which helps non-Jews particularly. And you get a certain amount of flack from some people about doing that drive. But my synagogue, they've learned they can't criticize it because right. it's it's a vital part of it. Right, so uh, Wendy, I think what you're saying is that one reason why we should be considering all of these rules and regulations about pay-ah is to uh, train our, ourselves not to be um, disinterested or uh, unaffected when seeing those people who don't have enough food. That we should care at least uh, about them in some way or another and structure our habits, our systems, our fields, so that they too have access to foods that we perhaps could or should eat uh, otherwise. Um, I, I think that there's something powerful there. Um, Uh, so uh, Marion is asking about the Hebrew for the Yerushalmi. Uh, if someone returns to get peah, you should give that. You should uh, err on the side of the gener of generosity. The poor who takes additional portions should be afraid for himself. In other words, uh, this is also um, spoken about elsewhere in the Babylonian Talmud as well. This notion of being afraid for himself. 
it, it's a backhanded, um, perhaps a, a light slap on the wrist for the poor of somebody who skips the line. Um, and, and Maimonides talks about that. If somebody skips the line to receive pay'ah uh, and takes one from the pile, the person who's distributing it uh, is not allowed to keep that food away from the person who is skipping the line and comes to the front to take the pay'ah. Uh, but that person who has skipped the line should be afraid of for himself. Maimonides talks about this, the, the Bavli talks about, and so does the Yerushalmi. Um, so what does that mean? Should be afraid for himself. That he has, uh, that that individual who has skipped the line has in has broken the, uh, has not followed through on the typical processes of food distribution um, and engaged in um, idiosyncratic behavior. If everyone behaved that way, no one would get access uh, to, to the food stuff. So it wouldn't be a fair distribution. Um, so that person has not necessarily broken the law per se, but has engaged in unethical behavior. So I hope, Miriam, that that answers uh, your question there. Yes, thank you. Uh, so what we see here with all of these rules about pay, uh, pay ah, is that there are divine reasons, there are historical reasons, there are character trait reasons, there are economic reasons, there are security reasons. Uh, there are a variety of different reasons for, uh, for us to design structures so that food loss is minimized and food waste is also minimized. So that we don't discard food uh, willfully uh, that we would otherwise uh, consume or could consume, and that we construct mechanisms, strategies uh, through, um, through the very ways that we produce food and get food to market. We need to construct them so that there is a minimal food loss and maximal access for those people who don't have the economic wherewithal to purchase food in the marketplace. So let's turn to our second chapter, which is the chapter of wasted food. So if we're moving from the plot, we're now moving to the plate now. So in any, uh, there, there's uh, an axis by which we are all, um, that we all live through every single day, multiple times during the day. So when we sit down to a meal, it, it, the meal takes place over a period of time. So we can talk about the duration of a meal. And the meal begins when you pick up your fork, your chopsticks, or whatever, and uh, it ends uh, when you finally have said, um, have finally decided that you want to move on and do other things. Uh, so you stop your consumptive moment. So this is the duration of the meal. The intensity that we're going to talk about is the intensity of the feelings of fullness and the feelings of hunger. So at the beginning of a meal, the hunger curve is really intense. But as you eat, your hunger decreases. As you begin to eat, your fullness curve, the feeling of fullness, is quite low. But as you continue to eat, your feelings of fullness increase. Now, these two curves cross each other at some point during the meal. And this is called the satisfaction point. And so scientists of consumption, scientists of eating, talk about two different things, satisfaction and being sated. 
So this is your satiation curve and this is your satisfaction point. So to be sated is, uh, to sate yourself is to uh, be somewhere along the curve and it is a verb, but to be satisfied is a state of existence. It is a static noun. And uh, between meals, hopefully you are satisfied, but eventually you become so unsated after a meal that your hunger has increased again and you want to decrease your hunger and become, uh, become more, uh, more satisfied again. But what happens in the American context is that we often eat all the way until we are stuffed. We go eat beyond this satisfaction point until we are stuffed. Some of us may do this uh, only a, a couple of times a year, like at Thanksgiving or at Passover, Rosh Hashanah, um, or some of us do it all the time uh, as, a, as a habit. But biologically speaking, anything that is in this curve is biologically wasted food. Sorry, clicked through too fast. There we go. It is wasted food. Uh, why is it called wasted food? Because your body doesn't need this. Your body doesn't need the extra calories, the extra nutrition, the extra fats. Uh, it, that is not necessary. What your body needs is what you have put into it at the very beginning until you have reached your point of satisfaction. And how do you know that you are satisfied? Uh, the best information that we have, uh, that I have come across, according to uh, the, the, my studies in, in nutrition science and psychology of eating, is uh, to be sensitized to your stomach's distension. Distension. Uh, think about a balloon. If you blow up a balloon, the balloon itself. Uh, distends or extends, it expands in physical space, three-dimensional space. Your stomach does something similar too as you put more food and drink into it. And we all know that hormones are late. You, the, feel, the hormone for fullness takes about 20 minutes to get from your stomach to your brain, to signal to your brain to stop eating. And so that, that is where this uh, the wasted food comes in is that uh, it's 20 minutes too late and we can eat uh, a lot of damage there in those 20 minutes. So it's perhaps better for us to pay attention to the physical sensations of distension. And when we feel our stomach being distended to a comfortable part, we're probably very close to this point of being biologically, metabolically satisfied. Anything beyond that point would be considered wasted food. Now, Judaism has something to teach on this part, and this is, comes from the prophet Elijah, who teaches in the Babylonian Talmud uh, to, Rab, uh, to Rabbi Nathan. And he says, you should eat a third, drink a third, and retain a third, for when you become angry, you will be filled to your capacity. What do you think this means? And please do chime in uh, orally. So please press your space bar and let, Let's hear your comments. What do you think this means? I think that it means that uh, uh, you should, the 
the third that you retain is your saving leftovers kind of for when there might be a point to need. Uh, that's ah. the only. Great. So in other words, Alan, you're, su you're suggesting that you should eat a third of what you have served in front of you? Correct. Okay. What other ideas do you have out there? Um, hi, I, I just had a couple of questions, just thinking as you were talking. Sure, Steve. And one, wondering, like, anywhere in the Torah, is there anything about body image? I know this is man is created in the image of God, but there's so much to deal with weights and measures about how to construct this or that, but um, anything about portion size or what you should, because a third doesn't give you a specific amount. I'm just wondering over time what the body image might have been. And just also a little bit off topic, but you'd mentioned Maimonides a bit earlier. And obviously he was a physician and Spain at the time that he was alive had lots of agricultural kinds of things. So he was aware of, I guess, technology as it relates to agriculture. Um, and then one other thing I wanted to mention that lion reference, I was in Spain a few years ago and there's somewhere in Alhambra, there's a court of lions or something. I'm just wondering if that was sort of in the, um, the house of lions or whatever that related to his thing about lions in the garden, if that had anything to do with the Spain that he was in at the time. Right, so those are good questions, Steve. My understanding about Maimonides' life is that while he grew up in Spain, he had to flee it when, uh, the, um, when the Muslims came in to, to overtake them. Uh, and so he fled to, uh, to Morocco, lived there for a little while, and then he moved on to Fostat, Egypt. And that's where he spent most of his professional career, and that's where he served as a physician. Um, so most of his medical science training occurred among the um, Arab and Muslim uh, scientists in the Egyptian context. Uh, and whether he w is writing his Mishneh Torah, I, uh, in thinking back to his childhood in Spain, I don't know. I'm unfamiliar uh, with the specifics of his biography at that point when he was writing the Mishnah Torah. But, um, but he, I, I think you're right that it would have been a, a powerful experience uh, and perhaps he was drawing on that and inspired about that when writing about, at least for me, Pnei Darchei Shalom, for the sake of the ways of peace, please do not release your lions into the fields when others uh, can and should be gleaning. Uh, the leftover foodstuffs there. As for um, the comment uh, about, uh, you, you had another comment about body image. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so there are a couple of instances in the biblical text where it describes human bodies as being beautiful. Um, certainly some women are described, certainly in the book of Genesis are described as beautiful. So, so are some men are described as beautiful. And uh, the Song of Psalms uh, is, is, of course, famous for describing bodies metaphorically and also literally uh, as being beautiful. In the rabbinic corpus, uh, there are several rabbis who are described as beautiful. Uh, one of the most famous stories is of a rabbi who sits outside of a bath, a, uh, a spa, if you will. And uh, his colleague, his friend and colleague asks him why you're sitting there. And he says, so that the women can look upon me and when they make love with their husbands, they will think about me and their children will be as beautiful as I am. So we can, 
we can examine that story for his narcissism, for his notion of um, uh, fetus development and genetics, et cetera. But it does, it's also a story about human aesthetics as well. Um, Margo in the chat is talking about uh, our bodies. Margo says, it seems that women are objectified too much with emphasis given uh, to the shapeliness of body rather than the pleasantness of the face. That's true in many cultures. Um, and so, yes, there, uh, body, shot, body size, body shape is talked about in the rabbinic corpus as well. I do know of another um, vignette of an obese rabbi who is taken to a uh, what was then called a hall of marbles, a, 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 a proto-hospital, if you will. And he uh, basically engaged in bariatric surgery. They opened him up, removed all of his visceral fat, and sewed him up again. Um, so we have some textual imaginations, I don't know if it's true or not, of early bariatric surgery. So there are talks, uh, sources, and that, that's just one anecdote. There are many sources that talk about body size, but I think what I'm more interested in here is not talking about body size, because I'm not so interested in body size. Uh, I'm more interested in uh, whether you are fit and healthy, uh, whatever size you are, whatever you look like. Um, at yesh when yeshivas where I went, there was the idea I mean, there was lip service, the idea you're supposed to be healthy, do things to make yourself healthy. But there was the opposite that uh, sports were looked down upon, Phys being too interested in your body was looked up, down upon. In fact, if, when you walked, you were supposed to lower your face a bit because otherwise you would be seen as a Balgaiva, um, hard to translate, uh, someone who was too proud. So you looked right. down a bit. Like it was a Musar tradition. And it ah. was denigration of the body, really. That's surprising because uh, if you do take a look at the source sheet that I have sent uh, out with you, um, Maimonides does talk about this notion of exercise. It's found in uh, this section here and we're gonna come up to it in just, just a few yeah. moments. Oh yeah, I, that was Rambam, but I'm talking like the Musar tradition was very that's different. Correct. That's correct. I have a thought on this third and the third. Yes. That you eat with restraint, you drink with restraint, and there's stuff still on the table. Right. If you become angry, you, you might drink more, and I'm assuming drink would be an alcoholic drink, wine or something like that. You right. drink too much and you'd get drunk, be obnoxious. <laughs> eat, you know, if you, if you didn't have your third left, you'd go into somebody else's food or right. the food. And the same with the food, you'll eat and then you'll get yourself sick. That's right. I, so, uh, so these are all good interpretations. Um, so let's put this into a visual here. Uh, let's say it, it could refer to the food that is in front of you, the food and drink that is in front of you, or it could refer to your stomach itself. And Rashi comes along and says that, interprets this last phrase for when you become angry. He says, anger fills your belly to your capacity. So if you fill your innards with food and drink, so if you fill your belly with food and drink, when you become angry, 
you'll split asunder. Why does Rashi and the Talmud before him think about this? Why do they think that anger is something physical? It's because they operated in a world of, uh, of Galen. Galen uh, and uh, Hippocrates and some of the other early Greek physicians had this idea that the body was comprised of the four humors and emotions were also uh, physical things to be physically metabolized. So it is anger uh, is something physical it's the slishing and sloshing of your emotional life that fills your belly. And they wanted, according to Rashi and the Talmud, Elijah and Rabbi Nathan, they want you to have the biological space in your stomach to metabolize your, uh, your emotions. So one way to, to say it is that if you filled your body with biology, with food and drink, you would not have enough room for your biography, for your emotional life. How many of you have wheezed yourself off of the Thanksgiving table to the couch and said to people, don't talk to me, I'm uncomfortable. It is a similar kind of situation here, that if you are filled with too much food and drink, you don't have the wherewithal, the, the mental space, much less the, the stomach space and, and strength to deal with a dynamic emotional circumstance. So this makes sense given the worldview in which they operated, which is a, a Galenic worldview of the four humors. Um, this is carried forward by Maimonides. Maimonides also agrees that you should not eat until your stomach is very full, but rather you should eat until it's three quarters full. So he also agrees that you should retain a part of your belly. And this is also picked up in the Islamic tradition by Al-Ghazali who uh, lived in the, uh, around a thousand years ago. Um, and he quotes this Hadith literature, this Hadith um, uh, little saying, that uh, Muhammad once said, wear your clothes, eat and drink up to the middle of your stomachs. For to do this, that is what prophets do. So all three of these schools of thought, Elijah, Maimonides, and Muhammad, all suggest more or less the same thing, that when you are going to eat, go ahead, eat, eat your cake, eat your fried chicken, eat your food, uh, drink your drinks, but don't ever fill yourself so much that you don't have room to actually enjoy the dynamics of your emotional life. Another I, word, engage in temperance. Yes, go ahead. So, um, I was wondering if um, this um, idea of temperance and retaining could be related to sort of how sometimes I know personally I'll own it, just stuffing my emotions down with food. Like, mm -hmm. oh, I feel lonely. I'm just going to keep eating this chocolate like or ice cream to the bottom of the pint or whatever, um, if that could be part of this. And also I'm curious as to if we know if there's any scientific reason 
why the body gets full before the mind does. Because my mom used to tell me that, like, mom, I'm so hungry. Oh, no, just wait 20 minutes. You probably, you know, like, even when I was little, she would say that. And I wonder why your brain, like, has not caught up, like, um, evolutionary-wise to your body's fullness. And if we know. Yes. So, Bimira, that's a very good question. So, uh, remember that for the vast majority of human evolution, we did not exist in a food landscape of superabundance, which is the kind of food landscape in which we currently exist. For the vast majority of Homo sapien development, we existed in a landscape of food insecurity, radical and dramatic food insecurity. So when, it, when there was the opportunity to consume a, a food item that had a lot of protein, a lot of calories, uh, we were hardwired by that stage to go ahead and consume it because we were food insecure. We did not know when or how or where our next meal was going to come from. And so we would eat ourselves silly, basically, biologically speaking, in that vast majority of human development. Uh, what has happened since the agricultural revolution from around 12,000 or 10,000 years ago, uh, where we uh, were able to um, create greater increasing levels of food security, uh, our bodies still have this hardwired uh, predilection to consume high caloric, high protein, hyper palatable foods, uh, even though we don't necessarily need it because we have greater food security. So our bodies have not yet evolved to adapt to the contemporary food landscape. Uh, and so that's why contemporary science, nutrition science is saying, do not listen to our hormones, which are notoriously late, but instead listen to our physical body, the physical distension of our stomachs to get that, to ascertain when we have reached um, satisfaction in a particular meal. Does that make sense? It does. Thank you very much because I've been, I've always been curious. I appreciate your answer. Thank you. Yeah. So it, it's what I find really interesting is that these ancient ideas from the Talmud, from Maimonides, and from uh, Muhammad or uh, Al Ghazali, um, that these old old ideas are now being corroborated by contemporary science that these old ideas of retaining some part of your stomach uh, empty and not eating yourself until you are glutted, that this is perhaps the best way for you to consume irrespective of whether you exist in a landscape of superabundance, which most of us do exist in, or a landscape of severe food insecurity, which is frankly when many of these folks used to live that even then they knew that it was important for us to retain a part of our stomachs uh, empty so that we could still enjoy the emotional life. So this is at the plate. Uh, one way to, uh, to reduce food waste is to not waste food in our bodies, uh, but to uh, eat in a, temperum, uh, in a temperance kind of manner, moderation. A, our last chapter 
is uh, looks more about the principle of project drawdown and uh, the Hebrew concept of Baal Tashchit. Project drawdown is, uh, among other things, looking at ways to address uh, climate change. And they do so uh, predominantly, as I showed earlier, through uh, ways to reduce wasting food. And why do they talk about wasting food? Because the food we waste contributes an extraordinary amount, 4.4 gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent into the atmosphere each year, which is an 8% of the total anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. How we produce our food has a huge impact on our impact uh, on our uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And uh, contemporary scholars of climate change have said that we must be addressing the ways that we use food and specifically the way that we use food in regards to food, uh, the way that we use land in regards to food, uh, we need to be talking about that if we're going to talk seriously about climate change at all. And that if we don't talk about the ways that we use land to produce food, uh, then when we're talking about climate change, then we might as well not talk about climate change, addressing climate change at all. So I define wasting food as food that is inherently wasteful of water, land, natural resources, labor, time, and the climate. And this is different from food loss. It's different from food waste. And it's different from wasted food. Wasting food is food that inherently destroys or depletes water, land, resources, labor, time, and the climate. And there are at least three big categories of wasting food that I am aware of. One is industrial animal farming, another is monocropping, and the third is deforestation. And these are not necessarily mutually exclusive. They are often overlapping practices. But what I find is that they are practices that waste water, land, natural resources, labor, time, and climate. It just so happens that Judaism has thought long and hard about at least uh, of many of these issues. The very first order of the Mishnah itself talks about the ways that we use land to produce our food. And of its 11 chapters in this order of Zara'im, talk explicitly about the ways that we uh, plow our land. We've already talked about that. Uh, and the ways that we uh, harvest our food and also how we plant our fields, that we should, we should resist against uh, monocropping. Uh, and this is explained uh, more explicitly and in details in the chapter on Kilayim. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 20 uh, and in other sources that you have on your source sheet, uh, it talks about uh, the, the challenges of selecting uh, trees to cut down, uh, whether you're engaged in warfare or not. Um, they talk about the 
that it is wrong to go ahead and just engage in massive deforestation for whatever purposes you want. Even during a time of war, you are not permitted to engage in, um, uh, in, in basically what happened during uh, the Vietnam War with Agent Orange. You may not engage with uh, defoliants. Uh, Rabbi Crane, excuse me for interrupting, but I thought that monocrop, I thought that Kilium was a, was an, uh, a prohibition of mixing different things together. Absolutely. It is a mixing of certain kinds of species. But if you read the halachot in, the, uh, in Mishnah Kilayim, it also says that you are permitted to mix and mingle certain kinds of fruits and vegetables, that they are allowed to be paired together. And indeed, contemporary agriculture science has found that if you plant certain plants near each other, like, for example, tomato and basils, tomatoes and basil plants near each other, the bugs that they attract um, are mutually reinforcing, uh, that they, uh, they help each other out. We but if call that companion planting or companion cropping. Exactly, and the rabbis were attentive to this fact of companion planting uh, and said, please go ahead and do that in your backyard farms. Um, uh, but you, there are certain crops where you should not be mixing. And they also have both uh, scientifically corroborated as well as mythologically supported reasons for those prohibitions. So Kilayim is not only about um, keeping certain species apart, but also specific, explicitly about mixing certain kinds of species, that there are benefits to uh, companion planting. Uh, so monocropping is um, warned against, that you should not plant only a field of basil, for example. You should also plant other plants with it. And similarly about deforestation, uh, both the biblical text and rabbinic texts uh, spend, spill a lot of ink uh, warning against uh, uh, wanton deforestation. And similarly with industrial animal farming, there are a lot of texts now um, that have been pulled together that talk about uh, the, the, damning, the damage and damning nature of industrial farming practices, that it's bad for the animals, it's bad for the meat, it's bad for the labor, it's bad for the land, it's bad for the water, it's bad for medicine. It, it's just a, a nasty uh, way of uh, bringing animal proteins uh, to market. There are far better, far more humane ways to do so. Uh, and there's a whole host of texts for us to consider that uh, think about uh, better ways of bringing animal proteins to market. All of them, I suggest, fall under the larger principle of Bal Tashkit, of not engaging in wasteful activities uh, that are inherently wasting of resources, labor, um, water, land, the climate, and labor. So I hope that uh, this uh, session this morning, thus far, has uh, introduced a few concepts of food loss and food waste, and uh, at least one Judaic strategy to address those kinds of issues at the plot uh, where we produce food. We've also talked about our practices at the plate, 
our behavior at the table, as well as some overarching principles of, um, well, uh, of uh, wasting food. And I would like to now uh, invite you to ask some questions, comments, concerns. Uh, this is an opportunity for us to expand into a larger conversation. Rabbi? Yes. Hi. Um, I, uh, I, uh, I live in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, there's something here that I think you would be very, very interested in each year. It wasn't this year because of COVID, but the World Food Prize Conference, which is a week-long conference that uh, people from all over the world come here. We have many agriculture ministers from African and South Southeast Asian and South American countries come. Uh, there's usually a couple of Nobel Prize winners that show up, and it's a and it speaks specifically about a lot of the things that you covered today, and I think you'd find it very fascinating uh, to come to that and possibly even write in a proposal to give a talk about something at that. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that suggestion. And that's one of the great things about food. Uh, it, it literally is a, a wonderful content area to bring strange strangers to the table, uh, if you will not just around your, your kitchen table, but a public policy table, if you will. Because think about a university where I teach, Emory. There are people in almost every single department that are looking at food, whether it's history or psychology or philosophy or anthropology or religion or business. Uh, they're all, even English, that we have a course in, China, in the Eastern languages that looks at the noodle both Chinese noodle and the Italian uh, noodle. And it's a way of engaging in comparative literature. So almost every di discipline and almost every uh, profession out there dovetails with food in one way or another. Food is a wonderful way for us to bring interesting people together to talk about issues of great concern. And I think that as, as we all know, food is, a, is uh, a pressing issue for us individually, for those of us who are food insecure, for those of us who have unhealthy eating habits, for, uh, for our neighbors and neighborhoods about whether we should be having local farmers markets. Um, there are good things and bad things about those, about food access, urban jungles. Uh, what should we be doing about the farm bill here in the United States? How much subsidies should we be providing for industries that are no longer viable? How much food should we be sending to a famine? These are good questions. So food is, is a wonderful topic uh, that we can bring to a wide range of uh, conversations. I, I'd like to ask you a question. Um, have you heard of the, the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas? I have heard about it, but I don't know anything about you, it. You should really check it out. It's very, very interesting. They're developing perennial grain crops there. Ah, yes, that's what I've heard. Yes. The deep-rooted grasses or grains. Yeah. Well, they're trying to mimic, they're trying to mimic the, the natural prairie so that yeah. it, it uh, obviates the need for plowing and it reduces uh, soil erosion. And they've been at it now for almost uh, about 35 years and they're, they're getting somewhere. They have now a grain that uh, it's called Kerna, 
where they yes, I did I did read yeah. about that Marianne and it's so exciting these um the technology is helping to spur uh these more sustainable ways of growing grains and what's it's going to be challenging for the industries that rely upon um the crops the, the annual crops uh to adjust and to take on and embrace these more sustainable grains and agricultural practices very interesting they, they they just do a lot of and another organization that you may or not know about is called the uh the schumacher center for um, a new economy where where they they go on the principles of ef schumacher that small is beautiful and they uh, uh and that we should keep things local and and that would definitely obviate the need for uh the factory farms which as you say are so damaging thank you pleasure other um, comments or concerns yeah, my question is just your your thoughts on where food is going in general there was a flurry of articles about lab-grown meat and chicken whether that's even meat or chicken is it dairy is it parv or whatever and also just in terms of dairy you go to any grocery store now you see like 10 different kinds of nut milk which you've never seen before and maybe in terms of those kinds of things, replacing the need for as much actual meat and chickens and dairy when you have all these substitutions. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts about that is and where that might be going. So the dairy industry is, is perhaps um, one of the most uncomfortable to think about uh, because it requires impregnating cows uh, and then taking away the baby cows once they're born so that human beings can take the milk that is designed evolutionarily for the cows, for the calf's development. There uh, was an article in the Times this morning just on that, on dairy farming, on the good aspects of it, the bad aspects, uh, you know, the, the, the pressure on dairy farmers, the pressure publicity to reduce use of dairy, but the dairy farmers who are also being trained to avoid certain of the issues, that there's a, there are ways of raising the, the young cows, the young, the, the calves with the parents in with who, who then are children, uh, the males would ultimately go for veal, but they would not be separated at birth and there's a, it's a big article, I read it this morning. So there's a lot of information now that's, uh, in more and more information is coming out every year about different aspects of contemporary animal farming, whether it's uh, the dairy industry or the poultry industry or the, the beef industry. Uh, and for the most part, it's really uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable to, to learn about, it's uncomfortable to see, and witness. Um, and for decades, uh, there has been a concerted effort by industry leaders uh, and by the popular press to avoid um, these topics. And I think that there's greater comfort in sitting in the discomfort. Uh, I taught a course this last year called Ethics Around Eating Animals. And I had carnivores and vegans in that class. I brought a, a leading um, advocate of clean meat uh, or cell-based meat, uh, as well as a butcher uh, to the class who literally dissected and dressed down a full lamb in front of us. Uh, it was one of the more visceral 
pedagogic moments <laughs> that I have had. Uh, hopefully my students will remember that class, but there's a lot to, to think about when it comes to eating animals. I, I don't wanna to spend too much time today because I think you're gonna have a, another uh, speaker later on today talking about the ethics around eating animals, but there's a lot there uh, to think about ethically and also Judaically. Judaism has a lot, has spent, has spilled a lot of ink over the thousands of years about whether to eat animals, how to eat animals, why we should, why we shouldn't, et cetera. So I, de I defer to other speakers uh, for that conversation, but I welcome those questions uh, offline if you would like to continue them uh, here. Rabbi, I have a quick question for you if you have a moment. Um, um, first, I wanted to say thank you. I didn't catch the name of the person who suggested the Hamid stripe, but wow, thanks. I'm gonna bring that up uh, with my show later, but I wanted to ask about um, specifically um, texts in Judaism that speak to deforestation and defoliance, which is like a huge thing to me. I think I lost my dad to an Agent Orange cancer. And um, I really wanted to know a little bit more about where I can find information on that in the text, sacred text. Thank you. Uh, so a uh, very good question. So some of the better authors uh, on the protections of trees and forests, uh, I'm thinking of Barry Schwartz, uh, Arthur Waskow, um, and uh, Berenson, what's his first name? Uh, I'm blanking on his name, but uh, the Jewish environmental movement uh, and the Jewish environmental scholarship is probably a good place to start with uh, finding sources, explicit uh, and specific sources on those kinds of questions. I've provided a, just a few in the handout uh, that you can find uh, in the chat uh, here. Perfect, thanks. I'm, I'm very sorry to hear about your father. It's That's so tragic and distressing to hear. It is, yeah, so much. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Pleasure. Shiva. Uh, Rabbi, you were talking about uh, your discomfort and uh, the general discomfort about food practices and breeding practices. In Judaism, the, there is the notion of uh, kosher food, uh, but uh, generally it is uh, the emphasis is on what to eat and what not to eat. And uh, uh, but there are, there are also references about uh, uh, how to um, uh, butcher uh, an animal and uh, maybe even uh, about uh, what is uh, the kosher method of farming and uh, what is the kosher method of, method of breeding. And if the emphasis is on, more on uh, the kosher method of farming, kosher method of breeding, then uh, that discomfort would go away. And uh, what is it that an institution like Drisha and uh, Judaism could do to extend this notion of uh, kosher farming and kosher breeding and uh, make sure that uh, uh, the genetic contamination and uh, toxicity goes away? Great question there, Shiva. Uh, so on uh, genetics and animals, it, we even saw that just a couple of weeks, week ago, weeks ago in the Parsha, where, um, who was it that was talking about his father-in-law's, um, I think it was uh, Jacob talking about his father-in-law's uh, flocks and that he wanted to take certain kinds of flocks of animals, uh, uh, goats and, and sheep, whereas leaving other kinds of marked 
uh, sheep uh, for his father-in-law. Uh, so he wanted to separate out the, the kinds of genetics of those flocks. The rabbis run with that and they say that there are certain strategies to ensure the purity, the, the health of um, the health of those animals. And they talk about different uh, impregnation strategies, uh, which animals you're allowed to pen with other kinds of animals. Uh, and so there's a whole literature in rabbinic uh, sources on appropriate animal husbandry practices. Whether that's called kashrut or not, that I defer to my friends and colleagues who, who are more students of kosher laws. Um, there's another feature of kosher laws that is not only about what you are permitted and prohibited from eating, but also about the ways that you prepare foods as well. Uh, that there's certain forms of contamination that would render a particular dish unkosher, which means unfit for consumption. That doesn't mean that you can't eat it. It means that you shouldn't eat it. And I want you to hear the difference. It's not that you can't eat unkosher food, it's that the tradition has said that you shouldn't eat it. It's still food, it's still edible. And that is one of the challenges that I think contemporary Jews need to wrestle with, is that something that has been deemed unkosher does not mean that it's inedible, that it's not nutritious. It's just that our tradition has a bias, a prejudice about that particular food stuff. Do we want to continue that bias? Do we want to continue that prejudice? when we know that that food stuff is perfectly good food, that is nutritious, that it could be uh, used to keep somebody alive and healthy. That is something for us to wrestle with and saying that uh, just because it has been bequeathed to us as a tradition, in a tradition, uh, is not necessarily a, a good reason to keep something. There are plenty of laws and rules that we no longer keep. Uh, some of us do not take our rebellious teenage children to the city gates and stone them to death. That was prescribed in the Bible. So there are plenty of rules that we no longer practice. And perhaps at least in the food related uh, arena, we can also question some of the practices uh, around uh, food, um, food biases and prescriptions. On animal husbandry, last comment, I think there's a lot there uh, that when I said uncomfortable, there's a lot there for us to, to learn about contemporary animal husbandry practices and genetic manipulation. The contemporary chicken, for example, the, the broiler chickens yes. are, are dramatic, have been so manipulated for the last 70 years. They are nothing like the heritage breeds. Uh, and we should really question whether we ought, we, whether we want to or should continue to participate in those industries by buying those products. Oh, I, uh, I just, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot to uh, emphasize one thing about uh, the concern concerning seeds that do not produce seeds, uh, engineering plants in such a way that uh, yeah. the seeds are infertile. Thank yeah, you. yeah, Monsanto is famous for, for developing those kinds of um, dead-end uh, seeds. And, and again, I think that that goes contrary to Jewish traditions uh, of uh, developing produce, uh, developing seeds that are more sustainable, uh, pro produce practices that are more sustainable rather than um, monopolizing seeds like that. What concerns me is I learned, you know, in Hebrew school as a child, uh, 
one reason that kosher slaughter was designed to be the fastest way of the animal dying, that it gave the animal less suffering. Yes, uh, you're, you're absolutely and Now you find that people who are opposed to kosher slaughter because they do something by hoisting it on a chain, and that certainly is an extremely frightening thing for the animal and lasts a longer time. So has kosher slaughter technique by sticking to some kind of legal uh, method of using the knife with the, with the throat finally, but not dealing with the preparation for that, made it into what it wasn't supposed to be. So the, um, the, I encourage you to read a book by Aaron Gross called The Question of the Animal. It's a scholarly book, uh, but he, uh, what sparked that book, which was part of his PhD dissertation, was the scandal at the agroprocessors plant uh, in Pottsville, Iowa in 2004, and again yes. in 2008 and nine. Yes. Uh, and so there was a huge scandal associated. It, yes, yes, that, that was a terrible scandal with that whole place. Right. The it's, workers it's were fun. being abused. The animals were being abused. It, it was bad. I agree with you. And what he does is he examines the, those incidents uh, and tries to understand why it was that um, the kosher industry nevertheless tried to protect the Rubashkins uh, from the obvious proportion of the food. Don't interrupt the rabbi. I had. It, it, it's all right. The the uh, the the, the, the scandal was horrendous on so many different levels. And what was also scandalous is the ways that Jewish establishments uh, try to protect the, the Rubashkin family from the responsibility of what they were engaging in. And so his book explores those issues, both the ethics of the the dereliction of duty and the abrogation of halakha uh, in, in, the, in the plant itself, but also the cover-up as well. And what Judaism has to say about this, as well as the study of religion. Um, so it's a scholarly book, but it also addresses many of those issues as well. What was the name of it and the author again? Uh, Aaron Gross. I'll put it up in, in the chat for you. Also, I do want to plug for anyone interested in this particular issue. We had two sessions by Rabbi Adidya, um, by Rabbi Adidya Greenberg last week um, on shchita and kosher meat production, and he did a whole piece on the various arguments that are often anti-Semitic and anti-halal um, anti and Muslim um, mm -hmm. around meat production about like shocking, and he kind of went through each method and kosher and the problems with kosher meat. So I would also recommend everyone check out that recording as well. Um, and uh, uh, the JIFA, Jewish Initiative for Animals, is another wonderful organization for Jewish teachings and resources on that particular topic. But again, that's not my uh, bailiwick for this 90-minute uh, session, which is coming to a close in just a few moments here. Um, but what I hope this session has provided for you is a, a glimpse that Judaism has wrestled with food, eating, loss of uh, food waste, um, wasting food, uh, good ways to eat, bad ways to eat. Uh, we have engaged in, our tradition has um, 
has spent a lot of time thinking about these issues. Uh, and I think that we owe it to ourselves to, to be uncomfortable and to listen to what our tradition has to say and perhaps disagree with our tradition. It, let it evolve, make it evolve uh, so that it better reflects our contemporary circumstance, our clarity on certain particular issues so that our personal practices and our collective practices uh, reflect our ethical commitments that have been, in sh of course, informed and shaped by the Jewish traditional tradition, but we don't need to feel ourselves confined by it, especially when it comes to food. So I welcome the opportunity to continue this conversation offline. You can reach me at emory at jkcrane at emory.edu. Uh, and if any of you are interested, uh, I also have a book in this arena called Ethical, Eating Ethically, Religion and Science for a Better Diet. Uh, and uh, thank you so much for joining me this morning. I hope that you have a healthy new year. Thank you, Rabbi, so much. Thank you so much, Rabbi Dr. Crane. Thank you for everyone that joins today. Thank you so um, much. It was wonderful. I do want to let everyone know that today's Yomi Yoon is not yet over. There is so much more programming to go. Um, today, at we're going to take a quick lunch break. And then at 1230, there's a session by Rabbi Viva Richmond called To Your Heart's Desire, How to Eat Meat. Um, so you can join us again at the same webinar link at 1230. I look forward to seeing you there. Um, and you can find in more, more information about that class and all of our Winters Mon classes. We have a whole nother week next week, um, food-related programming um, at www.drisha.org classes. So again, thank you everyone for the opportunity to learn with you today, and I will see you all later. Thank you. Thank you.